0: Welcome to season two of Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series from Partners Connected Health. I'm your host, Joe Kavidar. Join me as we embark on another exciting season of interesting and thought-provoking conversations with the leaders, disruptors, and innovators who are redefining the future of technology-enabled health and wellness. As someone who's been making healthcare predictions for more than two decades and keeping score of how often they come true, I'll tell you, it's often a humbling pursuit. I often talk and write about my predictions of the future and some end up just being flat out wrong. But it's important to look ahead, projecting where the market's going and can go to solve some of our most pressing healthcare challenges. I call it seeing around corners. So it's with great respect and admiration that I welcome our next guest, Chunkamui, a highly respected and sought-after futurist, innovation advisor, and author. He's written four books on strategy and innovation, including the New York Times business bestseller, Unleashing the Killer App, Digital Strategies for Market Dominance. One reviewer wrote that it absolutely nails how to and how not to innovate. Chunk is also Managing Director of the Devil's Advocate Group, a consulting group that helps organizations stress test their innovation strategies. He's a regular contributor to Forbes and Strategy Plus Business and has published in numerous primer outlets, including the Harvard Business Review and Technology Review. Earlier in his career, he was Managing Partner and Chief Innovation Officer at Diamond Technology Partners, now part of PWC, Chunka also helped establish Accenture's Center for Strategic Technology Research, which is now Accenture Technology Labs. Chunka holds a BS in computer science and engineering from MIT. He was born in Hong Kong, was raised on the south side of Chicago, and now lives in the green mountains of Vermont. So in addition to sharing a passion for innovation and digital health, we both also have Vermont roots, where I was born and raised. Chanka, welcome to Well Connected.
1: Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me.
0: So as I mentioned, your New York Times bestseller, Unleashing the Killer App, Digital Strategies for Market Dominance, is just one of four books you've written on innovation. Over the past dozen years, as you've been doing this work, what changes have you seen in the market, both good and bad? And what surprises uh, were there along the way?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question. you know i think the most dramatic changes that we've seen in the past dozen years are really embodied by just a few products uh, that barely existed back then and you take the apple iphone it was released actually less than a dozen years ago and now it's worth more than a trillion dollars than it was back then and and facebook in 2006 a dozen years ago it had about 10 million users and no revenue and now it has over 2 billion users and brings in about $50 billion it will this year. And it's worth over $400 billion today. Back then, we could draw the exponential lines, as you said. Uh, but to, to see it actually play out that way has been a really, really big shock. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, good and bad, I think both these platforms embody the whole host of good and bad that we, we might imagine they have a lot of great capabilities, uh, apps in every possible domain. And as you've written so eloquently about it, uh, apps that capabilities are unfolding fast in the realm of uh, connected healthcare. care. Uh, but, you know, it's clear that not, not all the surprises are good um, mm-hmm. when you think about those technologies and further.
0: It's interesting you mention iPhone because that that would be my first choice of things that I just completely did not see coming. We had, and Apple's done this with tablets. It's done it with phones. We we had, uh, I'm sure you remember, smartphones, quote unquote, smartphones in the early part of the 2000s, and I was a a fan and a user, and and uh, but they were they were clunky. They they weren't particularly good, and it was really more the. The user interface of the that that now predominates the mobile market uh, that that really I think set the whole industry on fire. Yeah, I think that's um, right. And, and of course, I often talk about Uber and Lyft and how we in healthcare need to be more like those companies in our service delivery. But I'm reminded constantly that you couldn't do comp- those companies couldn't exist uh, a dozen years ago between cloud and. Uh, mobile and all the things that gps all the things that we now take for granted uh, that make those services possible so it's been a a wild time and uh, (laughs) when people ask me to predict the future i always come back to that and say well i couldn't have predicted the iphone and that was so fundamentally uh, life-changing that i i don't know uh, what what's going to happen in the next 10 years it will be that will be like that
1: well, I think the fascinating thing about the iPhone was that it was really the, the intersection, the merging of the trends around the Internet and the World Wide Web and mobile devices. Mm-hmm. So those smartphones that we had, the, the Razors and Nokias of the world, I mean, they were really a separate device. Yep. And with, with the smartphones, we got it all packaged together. So we could have the connectivity of the Internet. We could have the power of the browser and, and apps and on, on that device, which, you know, we were carrying around with us. But, you know, as Marshall McLuhan said, um, we shape our tools and then our sh- tools reshape us. And I think in a lot of ways, the reshaping of us by those technologies hasn't quite gone as well as we had thought.
0: <laughs> Say more about that.
1: Well, you know, we, we've we become a society addicted to smartphones, you know, to the point where accidents and fatalities due to distracted driving mm-hmm. are going up. It's, it's the first time in, in in a dozen years, that highway fatalities or accident fatalities have actually started trending upward. And then we have social media, which, as you have written about, you know, is this potential for increasing connectivity and decreasing loneliness, but it's also enhancing tribalism and mm-hmm. uh, partisan strife. So, I think one of the things we're learning is that these technology platforms—they're they're massive. Uh, the po- their power, their their reach is. Really heightens their their ability to amplify both the good and the bad. And, you know the Uber's of the world, and the fact that this base technology could enable that kind of service so quickly is a, is an example of amplification of of those kinds of capabilities. Um, but the other things we're seeing is the application of the potential dangers, and I think that raises the uh, the, the expectations the responsibility actually of the people working in this in these fields to worry about both the good and the bad at the same time.
0: yeah, yeah, well stated and and that's right, and these things are they're they're just tools that can be used and misused. Uh, i I do think the the other thing that I uh, regret is the um, the uh, I guess dynamism between having Open platforms and then having uh, hacks and 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 uh, malfeasance uh, uh, and all that. I think that that's a really there's such a important tension there. And one of the things we we talk a lot about in uh, connected health is the power of all that data you're driving off of that mobile device for for us to help um, uh, inspire you to be more healthy, but. The the more people get freaked out about having their uh, ads show up on their device if they if they did something somewhere else and it's they know they're being watched in the back end, the, the harder it is for us to move that vision forward. So it's tricky.
1: Yeah. Trust. Trust. Trust has to be built in and security has to be built in and privacy the right kind of privacy has to be built in, and you know, as technology optimists as I am, and I, I, I think you are as well. Oftentimes, when we start at the front end of these efforts, we think about all the good things we can do. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. But
1: we're now at the point where this technology is is very mature mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, yeah. and uh, we don't we don't get to uh, we don't get to not worry about the uh, <laughs> the uh, this ne- potential negative secondary effects of our work.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well stated. So I want to talk a little bit about innovation. That's it's I would say an overused word these days, and uh, but but important. Uh, I think it, it's interesting, but in, in academic medical centers, often innovation means the next uh, 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 nature or science paper, right? It's it's very focused on. Uh, uh, discoveries that investigators make. But in the real world, it's sort of more about startups, whether it be uh, the startup community, innovation hubs within companies, et cetera. Um, and I just, there's so much going on and, and I, I'm sure you share with, with me this sort of, and I have to be careful because I'm like the old guy now, but <laughs> so, so, so much of it seems a little bit almost flip and um, not all that well thought out. Uh, so, how, I guess how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? What advice do you give? Um, and and because you follow this intensely, so what, what's your what's your take on all these uh, kids out of barely out of high school <laughs> forming companies and whatnot?
1: Well, I, I think that um, rule number one, from a, from an observer standpoint, is that ninety um, percent of these startups will fail. Yep. But the ten percent will be really interesting, right? So, how you interact with that ecosystem depends a lot about your, you know, your perspective and what you're trying to get out of it. But as I, as I, uh, as, as a participant, but more so, sort of a sort of systemic observer, um, I, I think the kind of innovation that I'm interested in, the innovation that solves big problems in dramatic ways. Um, my advice to those people who are looking for that kind of impact really boils down to six words. You have to think big, you have to start small, and you have to learn fast. <laughs> and by thinking big, I mean that if you really want to innovate, you have to have the audacity to stand back, you know, to start with a clean sheet of paper and to say, we're the real problems here and we're the big solutions. Not, you know, what's the incrementally faster, better, cheaper products from given today's world. Yeah. And there's a lot of room for that. And and there's a lot of opportunity for faster, better, cheaper. Uh, but I think in every realm today, given the technology platforms that we have and the big social economic problems we have, there's an opportunity to think big. And as you and I both care a lot about, you know. The in the U.S. we're well, we're hurling towards spending about four trillion dollars a year on healthcare. Yeah. So everybody knows that you know, pardon the French, the system sucks, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there needs to be radical reform. And and I think that radical reform is going to come from the people who are willing to think big.
0: Yeah. Well, well stated. I I do think that there's uh It's an interesting time because there's so many. Uh, attempts at uh, what I would call quizzical business models, because you, you have of companies like YouTube, Facebook, uh, others that that give stuff away for free and aggregate data on the back end. And some people think that's, well, I've got a great idea. We'll figure out how to monetize it later. And uh, that that can be a stumbling block, I think.
1: Y- yes. Uh, well, I, and I, I think that um, the the advertising-driven model that's worked in other arenas is is not going to work all that well in healthcare. Right. So, you, so you have to think about how how you deliver real value, and part of the problem we have in healthcare um, is that it's really hard to to extract value due to savings. Yes. You know, as opposed to create value by increasing costs. Yeah. And you know, so there's lots of opportunities to, to create new new services that will increase costs. Yeah. But quite frankly, that's not what we need.
0: Yeah, so true. So you've said it takes a monumental effort to get innovation initiatives rolling, but once they gain momentum, only great efforts can slow them down. You also talk about learning from failure and taking risks. What are some of the keys to uh, innovation from those perspectives? And do you have a set of do's and don'ts?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, when I said what you just what you just described, I wasn't I wasn't saying it in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was referring to the fact that, especially in large organizations, uh, it does take great effort to start uh, important initiatives, and unfortunately, it takes great effort to kill them when they don't work. Mm-hmm. And and that's really one of the challenges of, of trying to innovate in, in large organizations, whether, whether they be large commercial organizations or large academic healthcare centers. Um, you know, in a rational world, these large entities would be the ideal place for innovation. Uh, in your organization, in, in all big organizations, it's hard to imagine a greater set of experts, greater understanding of problems, a greater set of capabilities to address those problems. Uh, but get those organizations getting out of their own way and being able to focus on real value. That, that's hard because oftentimes when someone wins, someone loses. Yes. Or when you reduce costs, it's somebody else's revenue. Yeah. So, so it's really the the thinking big and then starting small is sort of is is the most important rule for those organizations to follow and you know on the issue of not being able to 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 kill things when they don't work which is essentially not recognizing your failures and learning from them I mean, it's it's really important that those organizations have some systematic process for innovation so that they can identify the big questions but not fall in love with their own ideas and always be able to, uh, to ask the tough questions about, you know, what are we learning? What do we need to do next? Does it make sense to pivot? Does it make sense to, uh, to adapt? And that's one of the things I think um, startups are very good to do because it's a Darwinian process. Right. There's, there's a whole set of investors out there saying, hey, is this going anywhere? And do I cut my losses now? Mm-hmm. Or is, do, I, do I see something good here that I can turn in a different direction? Uh, but that focus on outcomes and that focus on adaptability and agility, I think, is what everybody needs.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about it. Reflect on again as, as part of Partners Healthcare, the challenges that we we don't kill projects well at all. We 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 always say that, and then we we don't actually go back and try to fix it. There's the the other thing I would say that. Um, and you alluded to this. I think there's a purity about the startup world. I remember when we launched uh, HealthRageous back in 2010. I, I <laughs> very quickly learned this: that everyone there is focused on growing that business, and they get up every morning and they go to bed. And the, and there's the the metrics are pretty easy to measure, right? You have new customers, new revenue, uh, profitability. Uh, a little bit like batting averages and things like that in sports, you you either sure. make it or you don't. Whereas in an academic organization, it's more opaque. You you've got mission and there's four missions and it, it's just interesting. And I think people, the the project itself becomes the end for some people, and then therefore mm-hmm. uh, shutting it down is is uh, sometimes it's about hurting people's feelings and changing their career path, it, it's for some reason more challenging. What I don't know and I would love to hear your thoughts on is if that translates to the very large for profit world where you know we're not for profit so we don't have that driving goal of profit, although we have to make a margin, it's a little bit l- less magnified than certainly in the startup world. But I wondered if a, a large company and any of the ones you've worked with um, has that same sort of almost politicized view of innovation
1: well I think that's the natural tendency I think um, big ideas take great efforts and too often they're they're one of kinds of kinds of things it's almost like you're in baseball and if you were a batter and the only thing that mattered was home runs yeah and not batting average you got up every time and you had to swing for the fences because if you didn't hit home run you, you would you would um, loot mm-hmm. in big companies. Oftentimes, innovation is set up that way. Now, the smart, the smarter companies are the ones who set up the context for those ideas. They they they, they invest in a portfolio of innovation as opposed to a single project. Yes, that allows allows you to have a number of swings at the bat as a, as opposed to just one, mm-hmm. and it allows for those swings to be to be aggressive and, and aspirational, knowing. You know, in the same way venture capital's portfolio will have lots of things and a few outsized winners uh, will make up for for the rest. The smart big companies work that way as well. So there's there's a great example at Google in their in their sort of most outlandish innovation effort, which is their X Group. They they work explicitly by a portfolio method where they have lots of little big potential ideas going on at one time. And they have a they have a rigid discipline of having having specific uh, metrics that each one is going after. Not success mes- metrics necessarily, but test metrics. How do I what are the questions I need to answer to know whether or not this is a good idea and whether or not to continue? And they, they have an interesting approach of saying if you answer those questions and you decide that you shouldn't continue, that's success as well.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: And a success from the standpoint that you'll actually get a bonus, yep. and you're sh- assured to have a sh- another shot at the, you know, at that in a different project. Mm-hmm. So, so having having that sort of larger context, I think is key for for innovation processes to work. In, in venture capital, it's the, it's a portfolio, right? And in big companies, it has to be a portfolio as well.
0: So. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, one example. Do you, do you have others uh, of, of companies you think are doing a pretty good job at this?
1: Well, you know, an organization that, that you and I have worked with a little bit, and which I think is uh, really a great example of... Actually, for me, one of the best examples of a large company transforming itself over the last half dozen years or so is the American Medical Association. Right. It, it's, it's an organization that we all know It traditionally has been this organization that's been focused on advocacy for physicians. Mm-hmm. And in the last half half dozen years, it's really in a radical way embraced its mission around um, advancement of art and science of medicine and the betterment of public health. And AMA has really created a whole portfolio of strategic initiatives working at different aspects of this and taking to heart this notion of Portfolio approach, innovation, lots of learning, pivoting, and things of that sort. You know, even to the standpoint of starting an innovation lab in Silicon Valley and having a a um, uh, investment fund with a long term time frame.
0: Yeah, no, I, <laughs> that that is. Uh, it's great to hear you say that because I sort of came in in the middle of that movie. They they asked me to do something fairly uh, specific, which was to oversee. And co-chair a committee on digital payment advisory, uh, or to advise them on digital payment reforms. By the way, I have to say we, we've uh, for and I've been I've been on a lot of these groups over the years. Where and I'm sure you've been on some as well. Where you you it's like a blue ribbon panel, so to speak. You go and you meet right. a couple times, and not much happens, and they get to say that they met. Uh, they were very action-oriented from the start, and we've we've made a lot of progress. There are new CPT codes coming in uh, uh, 2019. Parenthetically, back to your other comment, we'll see if if they increase costs or not. We we think that they're going to be substitutive. Payers are probably a little bit afraid they're going to be additive. We'll we'll see how that shakes out. But in terms of increasing physician adoption, they've they've done a fabulous job. Yeah, uh, we we also have a. I've done a couple of projects with them uh, as well, and I've been friendly with some of the other folks. I think we, we you and I end up uh, rubbing elbows with some of the same folks. And right, right. I, I have to say it's, uh, it, it has been, I, I, I have been a dues paying member for as long as I've been a professional. And for some of those years, I wondered if my money was being well spent. <laughs> I, I, I don't think, so. think that anymore. And right. so, tell tell us uh, while we're on the subject of AMA, t- tell us a little bit about what you're doing with them. Which you you've been engaged with them now for a while. What what is your role in and in, in that uh, in that journey?
1: Sure. Well, I I have two roles, and and I have to I have to preface by saying they're small roles. I mean, in the sense that that the hard work is happening in Chicago and in Washington, and not. Not where I'm sitting, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I help to advise the, the executive leadership, Jim Medera, the CEO, mm-hmm. Ken Sherrigan, the chief strategy officer, Bernie Hentges, the Body chief operating officer, on really the strategic transformation on, on, on how they really ramp up mission impact. Mm-hmm. And I've also had the fortune of working with Karen Kamedic, who's leading mm-hmm. the charge at DMA around chronic disease yep. and particularly around uh, diabetes prevention and hypertension control. Um, and all those are sort of monumental efforts in what I think as the AMA's questioning of itself of where can we actually have real impact. You know, it's a four trillion dollar uh, industry. No one organization is going to be able to do that much in the end. Yeah. But I think your work on on the CPT codes is a great example of of the AMA asking, well, where are those where are those stuck points? Mm-hmm. You know, that we have some control over. Over which, if we don't fix that little thing, it gets in the way of our, everything else. And we all know, unfortunately, CPT codes is one of those stuff points. Yes. Um, but the, the you know, for example, the work work on um, on public health, you know, the AMA has this, the second half of his mission statement is to better run the public health. And, you know, that could be the same as world hunger, hmm. you know, or something else. But they said, well... One of the issues that we find is that the whole ecosystem is focused on acute care and there's all this research and understanding uh, about chronic care that we don't take advantage of because the payment mechanisms aren't there and they, that's not where the business models are. So their focus, you know, many tens of millions of dollars a year is on, okay, how do we change that aspect? How do we make sure that that knowledge mixed it into medical education. How do we make sure that the payment codes are there? How do we make sure policies align with shifting the industry's attention, not just not away from acute care, but in addition to in addition to care.
0: yeah yeah. Well, I guess some people say that uh, I I used to say seventy percent of our. Medical spend is lifestyle related. Some some other people have said up to ninety percent. I'm not sure what the right number is. Uh, I quote that stat, and I don't have a uh, a citation off the top of my head. But I uh, my point is, a, a acute care is, is shrinking compared to chronic illness and chronic illness management.
1: Yeah. So the question is, how do we spark the the ecosystem? How do we provide a catalyst to Greater or faster development on the chronic care side, and that's one of the things that AMA is thinking a lot about, which I think is 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 very good
0: well, and powerful. Yeah, and, and it, it also goes back to something you said earlier, which is that doing things more efficiently. What one one uh, person's savings is another person's missed revenue opportunity, right? So that's challenging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, so let's. Um, Talk about the future. You're a futurist. Um, and uh, uh, people ask me this, and I have to say, I, I'm, I'm turning the tables because I'm not that fond of this question. But what, <laughs> what do you think, uh, wh- where do you see us going? What, what are the big challenges that uh, we're going to have to overcome? Um, and again, and, and, I, and I'm specifically talking about your expertise, which is uh, how these big technologies are influencing multiple markets. Uh, do you see any glimmers? Some, sometimes I say, uh, uh, like I, I quote William Gibson, the, the future is, is here, It's just not evenly distributed. What, what are you seeing that you think are the uh, harbingers of where we're going?
1: Yeah, I, well, I definitely agree the future is here and it's not very evenly distributed, especially in healthcare. Um, you know, I think the, one of the focus of, of your conference, your connected health conference this, this couple weeks ago, is exactly key. You know, we, we know that there are a range of technologies. If you look at AI, you look at big data, you look at mobile devices. These technologies are way past the uh, emerging stage. You know, in a lot of ways, they're, they're prime time for some really hard problems. And what we need to do is we need to understand the intersection of, of these technologies with real problems and real people and understand how, how we can actually change behaviors and, and, and help the system. So I think those are the big opportunities. And as Alan Kay says, the uh, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Mm-hmm. And if we can focus on, on, on big problems, real solutions that can work in practice, um, there's great opportunity there. AI I think is certainly one of those because we can find lots, lots of point wise ways to interject uh, inject that technology into helping physicians do a better job, and and leveraging the state of the art in terms of knowledge. If we can design the interface with uh, with users right, um, so that that's that's one of the things I look to as as a big potential um, opportunity in the marketplace. Another great opportunity I think is just uh, data liquidity. We have all this health data, personal data, of all sorts, swimming around in these technology silos uh, because the the healthcare system is fractured in a lot of different ways, that the economic incentives aren't there, that their de- data sharing capabilities and agreements aren't there. If we can do something as simply as collect all the knowledge that we have for, on a particular patient and present it at the point of care, we could, do so much better yeah. in, in from a healthcare standpoint. And those problem those issues are definitely tractable. We can, we can address that if we can get off our own way. Yeah,
0: you know, It's interesting. The, the, uh, AI, I, I, um, I was ambivalent. Uh, I was watching, uh, our local football team on national TV last night. And, uh, happened to hear a couple of ads from Microsoft AI and I kind of cringed because it, it it's it reminds me of the early hype that IBM Watson had um, and again it was all marketing very very little behind it I I, I th- what I've said in in the past really years, I've been talking about this, that we we have to introduce automation thoughtfully into healthcare. We have no choice. Um, I just hope that some of the big names in the industry don't hype it to death before we get it figured out.
1: Yes. I, well, that, that is a problem. I mean, we have a line in going to our lessons uh, that Marketing is when we lie to our customers, and market research is when we lie to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think the the challenge is to really, really focus on problems. And and I think one of the things, I mean, one of the things I love about your work, and one of the things I think the AMA is trying to sort of generally enhance in the marketplace is to get practicing physicians involved in this in the solving these problems, and and that's the key, you know. So so that we st- we get away from just technology for its own sake and, and and actually focus on real problems.
0: That's uh, th- that last bit, uh, <laughs> lying, lying to uh, people and lying to ourselves, I'm, I'm gonna quote you on that one. It's been a tremendous <laughs> pleasure. I, I often finish up these uh, interviews by asking, is there something that uh, you thought we should cover that we didn't? Is there, is there anything that you, uh, any other words of wisdom you want to impart for our listeners, uh, who I'm sure will enjoy this episode very, very much?
1: <laughs> Joe, my experience is all the words of wisdom come from you.
0: <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for spending the time with us today. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in the future sometime soon.
1: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavita. A special thanks from me personally to Tony McMillan, our engineer, and Lynn Josephson, our senior marketing manager, for putting this series together. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more, visit our website at partners.org forward slash Connected Health, all one word. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Connected Health. For more episodes of our series, search Partners Connected Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.